0: Thank you for listening to the Adult Explore the Bible Weekly Leader Training Podcast. This podcast is designed to help teachers prepare to lead a Bible study group using LifeWay's Explore the Bible adult resources. Each week, we review the Bible passage for that week's study, examine some questions teachers may face, and give some teaching tips along the way. I'm Dwayne McCray, your host, and today I'm being joined by Bob Bunn. Bob's been with us several weeks uh, during this quarter. We're going to be looking at Session 13 First study in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. It's our last session in our study here of of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. The summary statement for this lesson is that believers are to live in obedience while waiting on the return of Christ. This is a theme that Paul has repeated more than once in his letters to the Thessalonians. And, And so that's how he concludes the letter as well. So that's what we're going to be looking at. There's three main points here for us to consider. They are established standards, provide, and discipline. The first one, established standards, comes from verses 6 through 9 of chapter 3. In these verses, Paul challenged his readers to not associate with people who were idle or who rejected his teachings. He pointed to himself as an example of a hard worker, giving his readers an example to imitate. The main point for us is that believers must hold up standards that remove barriers to the gospel. The second point provide verses 10 through 12. Paul reminded the Thessalonians that he had taught that an able person unwilling to work should go hungry. These idle busybodies needed to be encouraged to work and provide for themselves. The main point for us is that providing for our families is one way we demonstrate Christ to others. Bob, we're going to talk more about that issue here in just a minute. The third point comes from verses 13 through 15. In these verses, Paul encourages readers to remain tireless in doing good and to not associate with those who refuse to follow his teachings and to do so in love and not as enemies. For us, we must understand that believers should lovingly hold other believers accountable. So, we've got the issue of church discipline, waiting, all kinds of things here in this study. Uh, Let's talk out, let's start with this, uh, Bob. Paul directed them to separate themselves from the idle and disobedient. How can we do this without exhibiting an an attitude, let's say, of superiority? Uh, or do it in a way where it's not harsh, but we demonstrate love uh, when we do follow what Paul is calling for here.
1: Yeah, I think a good starting point for this is to remember exactly how these people were affecting the church in Thessalonica, what kind of impact they were having. Uh, Paul's words sound really harsh, and in a way they are, but because of the nature of their sin, these people needed a wake-up call. <laughs> they needed a strong statement against them. These were folks who, they weren't, they were, they were idle, uh, they, were bu- they were idle yet they were busybodies. <laughs> they were active, but they were active in the wrong kind of things. They were actively working against the, the best interests of the church. Um, the word that's, that's, that's used uh, in, in the passages, it was often used of soldiers who refused to march in formation. They were always wanting to go their own way and they would stray off from one side to the other instead of staying in the formation. And so these folks were regularly stepping outside of of what was proper Christian behavior so they could do their own thing, so they can meet their own needs or or fulfill their own desires. And that would have a negative impact on the church because the church wouldn't be able to minister as effectively. It would have an impact on the individual congregation members because. They were being abused, they were being taken advantage of by these folks, and it would have a, it would have a negative impact on the church's reputation in the city. Uh, these people outside the church, you know unbelievers can only judge the church by what they see in Christians. And so if they're watching the church and they're seeing this this kind of behavior being allowed, uh, they, they may assume that it's even encouraged. and but on the other hand, if they see Paul stepping up and the church stepping up and, and calling them out, and rebuking them and correcting them, then that lets them know that that there may really be something to this church thing, to this this Christianity thing. So, yeah, Paul's a little harsh, but it needed to be done. It needed to be said that way. As far as how we handle it, I think he hit the nail on the head when you said in love. You know, how do we do this in love? Um, that's what really keeps us from from crossing a line that we're not supposed to cross when it comes to correcting one another. When it comes to church discipline the purpose is always love. Paul's purpose was never vengeance. It was restoration. He, he he didn't want to get back at them. He didn't want to necessarily punish them. He wanted to restore them to the body. These were not lost people going out from doing their own thing. These were members of the church. These were brothers and sisters. He uses the term brothers and sisters constantly in this letter. And these were brothers and sisters. He even says in, in later in verse, verses 14 and 15, you don't remember that these folks are are they're your people, they're your brothers and sisters. So you know, don't consider them as enemies, but bring them back in, um, and love's the only way to do that. Now it, it requires tough love, uh, which in our culture is sort of countercultural. Uh, it, it seems kind of harsh, it seems kind of mean, but sometimes that's the only way to to really produce the effect. It's the only way to really get people to pay attention and to see how far how far out of line they have gotten.
0: Would it be us? Uh... Would it be safe to say that we should find joy in the restoration, but not in the confrontation? Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, Going back into the Old Testament, God often said, I don't take any delight in punishing my children, but he loved them enough to keep them from letting them keep going the way they were going. And that's sort of the way it is with the Christian life too. We We don't take any particular pleasure or sadistic joy in seeing people suffer, but at the same time, we have to be, we have to be faithful first and foremost to who God is and and what his call on our lives should be. And sometimes that means saying no to people we love. Uh, you know, I had a boss who used to say, he was famous for saying to be unclear is to be unkind. And so I think Paul is just saying, you know, be clear, (laughs) be clear with these folks. Uh, the, love, the most loving thing that you can do to them is to call them out to tell them exactly how it's going to be and then stick to your guns and treat them the way that you say that you're going to treat them, but you do it in love because that's what brings them back. And sometimes no is the most loving thing you can say to somebody. In
0: verses 7 through 9, he, he continues that idea about imitate us because um, if you're going to confront somebody, you've got to be setting the standard yourself. And so in, in these verses, he talks about imitate us. He says, we were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. We labored and toiled. We worked night and day uh, so that we wouldn't be a burden to you. He, he makes those kind of statements. Uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a fishbowl. He's talking about he lived in a fishbowl. Um, how does that help us understand how to pray for our pastor and other church leaders? I think we would say they live in a fishbowl, and we as leaders may do that as well. We may be living in a fishbowl, we just don't know it. We may not have that same standard, but how does that inform how we pray for church leaders?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think Paul definitely understood that he lived in a fishbowl. He understood that people were watching him constantly. Uh, believers were watching him because they needed an example, and so he was able to say, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I've done this for you. I've done this for you. I've shown you this way of life. So you can imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. And so he understood that. He also understood that people outside the church were watching him pretty closely because they were wanting to trip him up or they were looking for signs of hypocrisy or anything that they could use to discredit the church and discredit the message of the gospel. And so he understood that. But I almost think knowing Paul, you know, through what I see in the scriptures, I think Paul kind of thrived on that. You know, a lot of people today, when they think about living in a fishbowl, it's it's the stress. It's the pressure. You know, celebrities and athletes and famous people talk about how how hard it is to live in a fishbowl with an, in a social media culture where nothing ever gets turned off and no one ever shuts up. You know, it's just
0: it's constant. Can you can you imagine what it would be like for Paul to have social media? Oh yeah, I mean it'd be crazy. Oh.
1: But but I mean Paul Paul, I, you know, I tend to think he probably would have embraced it the way he embraced it when in the first century. He just went. He Paul, Paul was a simple man. He just went and lived his life for Jesus as best he could every day, and he was going to let God take care of the results. And so, you know, his, his focus is always to live for God, to live for Jesus, and to, to demonstrate Christianity in a way that was winsome, in a way that was attractive, and in a way that would draw people to the faith and to, to Christ. And so for him, pressure and stress probably weren't part of the fishbowl, but it was something that kept him accountable. It was something that reminded him every day that he had to live in line with Jesus. He had to lean into Jesus and to trust Him because he was going to make a mistake and he was going to he was going to blow things up if he didn't. Now, again, I think you mentioned you mentioned our pastors. Yes, our pastors definitely live in a fishbowl, and honestly, sometimes the, the 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 most stress and pressure that they experience probably comes from us as the average church members. You know, I remember talking to a pastor one time. Uh, he was kind of going through a stage where he was he was experiencing some friendly fire. Some of his his church folks had kind of gotten their, their nose out of joint about some things and were, were giving him a hard time through emails and maybe through gossip and things like that. And so I asked him, I said, you know, how do you how do you deal with that kind of stuff? How do you deal with that kind of pressure? You know, that the fishbowl we're talking about, the fishbowl mentality. And he told me, I'll never forget, he said, he says, yeah, I've come to discover that some of God's lambs have really sharp teeth. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that. And it, it, it reminds me to be gracious <laughs> to our pastors, to be gracious to our leaders, because they are they are just kind of trying to do their their thing. And, and they're trying to live for God the best sense they can. And we don't always have to agree with them. I don't know that I've ever had a pastor that I've, I've agreed with 100% of the time. But I don't go around backbiting them and I don't go around stabbing them and I, I don't go around uh, assassinating their character. Instead, I, I try to pray for them. And here's, Dwayne, here's one of the things I've learned there's two ways you can pray for your pastor. One is to pray for your pastor, that if you don't agree with them, if you don't agree with your pastor, pray that God changes his heart. But there's another side to that coin. As you pray for your pastor, and you pray about things that you disagree with him on, pray that God changes your heart too. One of you is probably wrong. We just have to have the humility and the boldness to admit that it could be us, <laughs> that maybe he is right and we're it not. It could be both of us being wrong. It, it could be, wow. it could be. But the idea is not assuming that I'm right and he's wrong. Have enough grace and have enough humility to, to admit, you know, maybe I'm not seeing things the way God sees it. And so just ask God to help The situation work out according to his glory. and If that means the pastor needs to change, that's great. If it means that I need to change, that's great. Or as you pointed out, maybe both of us need to wiggle a little bit. And if that's true, that needs to happen too. But the the, the point is that I think we serve our pastor best when we lift him up to God and and ask God to help him become the man he created to be. Now, one last thing, and we'll kind of close on, on this question on this. We're all living in a fishbowl. You know, the world is looking at each one of us. If we claim the name of Jesus, the world has its scope on us. And so we have to have that same kind of intentional attitude and that same intentional lifestyle that says, I want to live for Jesus because I do not want to do anything that brings him shame. I don't want to do anything that embarrasses him. I want to do stuff that lifts him up because that's when he draws people to himself
0: if we're going to put a fish on the back of our car, then we better act like we're Christian driving that car. It's true. Uh, you know, I will say this: well, before I move past this, I said, you know, they you both could be wrong. There is a there are some cases where both could be right, and you just have to come to to understanding of how the those two rights work together, mm-hmm. uh, even though they may seem to be contradictory. Yeah, uh, that's part of the beauty of of God is that. He is much more complex than we can handle, and we need to be okay with that.
1: Yeah, we assume things are black and white, and never, they, they rarely. Yeah.
0: Work. Thinking of that, there's one more question in this in this lesson, and that is how does benevolence fit into what Paul was saying here? Um, how do we discern who needs benevolence and who needs, uh, let's just call it encouragement? <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: And, and, and by encouragement, I assume we're going to talk about we're talking about discipline or correction. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, it's kind of a code word in Christian life. We want to encourage you. Uh, so, yeah, well, I, I think obviously the church is wired to minister. The church is wired to meet needs. We meet needs of, of our own people within the, the walls of the church through discipleship, through helping them become more like Jesus. And But we're also called to meet needs outside the church walls. And that's evangelism and compassion and and ministry kind of stuff. So, you know, we are definitely called to do that. And I don't think Paul in any way, shape or form was saying, you know, let's just cut off all the supplies and we're not going to be generous to anybody and we're not going to give anybody anything because we might be somebody might take us take advantage of us or somebody might misuse it, you know, and use abuse it. And I don't think he's saying that at all. Uh, I do think, though, that he's saying be really careful, <laughs> that there is a difference between those who, who cannot support themselves and those who will not support themselves. When he talks about those who don't work, don't eat, he's not talking about the widows and orphans who can't help themselves. He's not talking about the person who really was out trying to find a job every day and can't do it and just trying to figure out how to pay their electricity bill. He's talking about the lazy slugs who are... <laughs> who are just trying to beat the system one way or another. And they were all over the place, apparently, in Thessalonica. Now, there were in the first century, as I pointed out, widows and orphans had a terrible time. You know, it was a male-dominated culture, an adult male-dominated culture. And so if you were a a single woman or or a widow or a child, it was was really, really hard.
0: It was a culture that... um opened itself for, the, for abuse of those, those individuals and exploitation. Exactly. Yeah, they were the weaker, who Jesus called the least of these. They were at the top of the list probably. Yeah. And
1: so, you know, it, it was perfectly right for the church to come. And there was, there was even adult men there at that time that if they joined the church, they, they might have had trouble finding a job because some of the unbelievers and some of the pagans, because they might have been hesitant to hire a Christian either through persecution or suspicion. And so there may have been folks who were struggling that way too. No fault of their own, not that they weren't trying, but just because of the circumstances in that area, the church needed to come alongside them and support them at least for a short amount of time. But Paul was really zeroing in on these folks who who just refused to do anything to support themselves. And either because they were lazy or because I think some of them probably heard Paul talk about the, the return of Jesus and thought, oh, this is going to happen tomorrow. There's I can just quit my job and sit on a mountain and wait for him to come back, and the church will take care of me until then. They had this misguided idea of the Messiah. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus might come back tomorrow. You might be completely right about that. Obviously, we know from hindsight, it's been 2,000 years. We don't know when he's coming back. But Paul's point was Whenever he comes back, if it's tomorrow or if it's 2,000 years from now, you need to stay on task. You need to keep living your faith out the way you're supposed to living. You're supposed to continue to support yourself, continue to do the things that you're called to do. You know, later in his life, Paul wrote a letter to Timothy and said that anyone who doesn't support their own family is worse than unbelief. And so, you know, you, you, you filter this situation through that kind of attitude, you think, oh, this is really serious. That if I don't, if I'm just being lazy, or if I'm for whatever, shirking my responsibility as the provider of my family, then I am worse than somebody who, who, who rejects Christ. And so, you know, Paul is saying, stay at it, be faithful to your family, be faithful to your, to your savior each step of the way, because he is coming back, and when he comes back, you want him to come back and find you doing the things you're supposed to be doing.
0: The leader guide talks a lot about here about waiting. Uh, that's the name of the lesson, obviously, right. but one of the ideas here is to begin the lesson with a little bit different approach, and that is to, first of all, have folks standing outside the, the room you're using, and then invite everybody in. Make them wait outside, and then share some statistics about waiting in the United States from 2020. Uh, The statistics that are given in the leader guide are that Americans spend an average of 13 hours annually on hold for customer service. Um, Then uh, average American commuter spends 38 hours each year waiting in traffic. And then they note that big cities uh, could be more than 50 hours. And then the last statistic is that we spend annually 37 billion hours. Cuba, that's a, everybody, all Americans, waiting in line for something. Mm-hmm. So it, it encourages us to have the, share that information and then discuss the difference between waiting in line and waiting for an event like the return of Christ. Uh, one of the things that, that could be done is go ahead and have folks come on in have the statistics up. Uh, let them debate on whether those numbers are true or not and how they've experienced it and how you deal with waiting and then from that you would begin then to transition into a conversation about what's happening here in second thessalonians chapter 3 about the value of waiting in obedience knowing that the return of christ could be today it may be tomorrow but it could be today mm-hmm. and not just sitting around goofing off i guess would be the best way to say it uh, in anticipation of that but being busy at doing what God's called us to do when he returns is the value being presented here. Uh, but the leader guide, that's one way we can, can bring that conversation into this lesson. Bob, are there any other key ideas, key thoughts that you would share with, the, with our listeners before we go today?
1: No, I do like that activity from the leader guide because human beings by nature are not very good waiters. And so sometimes we have to learn to wait and we have to learn how to actively wait. You know, Paul lived with the same, Paul filtered everything he did through the fact that Jesus was coming back. That was, that was sort of the engine that, that drove pretty much everything that he did in ministry. And so he understood that Jesus could come back tomorrow or today. He understood that Jesus could come back next year, but that never stopped him from working and doing the things that he needed to do. And even we've, we've seen other places in the Thessalonian letters that he, you know, he worked a second job <laughs> to support himself on top of his ministry in the church. So, you know, if if Paul didn't use his, Jesus' return as an excuse to slack off, then, then I don't think we can either.
0: Bob, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, from time to time in the podcast, we mentioned different resources in the Explore the Bible family. Today, we mentioned the Leader Guide. There's a variety of other resources. You can find out more about all that is included in the Explore the Bible family by going to our website at goexplorethebible.com. That's go explore the Bible nospaces.com. Thank you for listening to us this week and we hope you'll join us again next week. We'll be looking at session one of the summer resources summer study of First and Second Kings. We'll be looking at First Kings chapter 3 verses 4 through 15. And the main idea there is that God offers wisdom to those who ask Him.